0: All right, everybody. Welcome to the show floor at Nam, 2020. My name is Chris Los. I am the columnist at LD at Large and the designer relations manager for Ayrton Lighting. I am sitting here with Bob Boniel, the chief creative officer for Mode Studios. We had a wonderful discussion yesterday, and we're going to kind of continue that live here. Uh, we are going to talk about our opinions on the future of the lighting industry the directions that we're going, and the reasons that we're going in that direction. Uh, so I, uh, I've seen that you've been doing some very uh, imaginative, creative projects lately, and I just wanted to have a little chat with you about what you're up to and what, you're, what you think we're, the direction that we're headed is.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, Absolutely. Your show is, uh, is regularly one that I tune into for real people talking about real issues of real substance in this little world of production we live in.
0: Ah, you're too kind. I, uh, when I started writing, I just, I couldn't find myself writing any more product reviews or uh, how to program things. I feel like there's a lot more that happens around the console that is far more interesting to me, to the real world stuff, the stuff that you and I would actually talk about over a beer in a parking lot, outside a loading dock somewhere.
1: Well, exactly, and I mean, in our what I'm now going to call our lost episode from yesterday, because uh, we had the opportunity to talk casually about things, but we didn't hit record. Um, uh, you know, there's a there's a huge difference. I think precisely in what you just said it's a big differentiator. Like the there's all these tools, there's technology, like all around us, we see all kinds of really dope light fixtures and effects and things going on and whether or not all that adds up to any kind of a, a, a bit to a recording artist in a live situation is about what's happening not in the technology but in the brain behind it, you know, that's driving it.
0: Yeah, that's what I find more interesting is the reason why we progress and why we keep adding more bits and gigabits of data to our show files is it are we creating more... More emotion, are we are we generating a larger impact by making things bigger? Because when it was the park hand days, in order to generate more emotion and more impact, you just added more park hands and more colors and hit more hits. And nowadays, you have to do so much more to, uh, to accentuate even that. Well, and
1: here's, here's the deal. Uh, is it not because the musicians, the performers, the artists, uh, they know that they have this deeper tool set in, with which to tell stories. They're telling stories, right? They're, they're establishing human connections through music, effectively, in many cases, through a form of storytelling. You know, and, and I think before lighting and production, when you're talking about the Arab park hands, it's super visceral, right? It's just like, it is about getting the physiological reaction of like, yeah, on the, you know, on the downbeat or on a guitar lick or on a thing. It's a raw emotional trigger. And now we have tools with nuance, right? So we don't have to just go direct for the physiological. We don't have to go for the neck, right? We can actually participate in the storytelling. And we could create, in doing that, that's a way deeper thing. Like, look, I've come away from shows, I still remember some of the most epic moments of, "Ah," you know, where like the audience blinders hit, something happens. uh, And it's it's an extraordinary visceral moment. But I remember way, way more episodes of being present at a performance where I felt a part of a story or part of a moment that had been built with a story behind it. And now I think it's, it's not about lumens and color just as such. It's about how can we use these things to make a beautiful, whole impact on people.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that it does happen where the artist comes to you and the, the emotion that they want to drive forward is how progressive and how much they love technology and how that's part of their message and how they want they want to be impressive. They want, they need drones to get the message across. They say, hey, I want to show my audience that I've thought this out and I have enough money to buy a thousand drones to put in a stadium. Can you help me portray that message to my audience?
1: And I think my answer to that question is, well, what do you want to do with the drones? Like what? what
0: In this world of technology, we have become the creative and the technicians all on our own. <sighs> Even in my own shows, I have to take care of myself.
1: <laughs> no. So my question about the drones is, okay, why do you want a thousand drones? You know, that my I always want to understand the, the impulse with the artist, you know? and
0: And, and you know, it's like when someone comes... In its purest essence, I want to believe that they went somewhere, they saw somebody else use it, and they had an emotion, whether it be awe or even jealousy or spite, like, well, John Bond Flugelstack is doing that. I need to also have that because I want my audience to feel the same amount of awe that I just felt.
1: Right. And they fixate on the tool. And they, they don't fixate on the moment. They don't fixate on the moment that was created. And as, as this conversation unwinds, we start talking about more and more powerful tools, like truly weapons grade creative tools, because we're going to get there. But underneath all of that is what is the moment you're trying to create? You know, you're a recording artist, you're a performer, you know. Uh, you know what, what emo, you know, what story are you trying to tell? What emotion are you trying to reach? And how are the drones in service to that, specifically?
0: That is a very valid question. You have to wonder if the price tag of the drones will relay to the amount of awe that they generate. You have to wonder if the... Are you adding to the story, or are you taking away from the story... With the drones. And, if, and even then, is, is it 10 drones that you need? Is it 50 drones? Is it 100,000 drones? And look, it's okay to not have a story. If the story is
1: that the story is that the show is the most technological, blowaway experience of all time that you will ever witness, and that's the hook, bring the drones. Meaninglessly, you know, without meaning. I'm cool with that. Right, but but it, but if you're a recording artist and you're putting together a show and you're just throwing production layers at it willy-nilly, because you've seen someone else's show and you saw an effective moment they created, you haven't thought about you know uh, most of the best recording artists I know are incredibly cost-conscious too, right? So I try to help them in that you know, and and I think that you spend money when you when you spend money wisely. Uh, you know, and you're going to build audience and you're going to build audience connection, you're going to build audience stickiness. If the drones are going to, are going to make your people go, wow, I got that song at a level I've never got it at before and I'm going to go see, you know, John McFlugelmeister that you referenced or whoever that is again and again now, then the drones have succeeded, you know? Yeah.
0: I, like you said, there are plenty of bands that have made it on not having a story and the, their, the value of their show is the production value. Let's say, let's say a band like, let's call them Smooches, they, uh, they're not the best artists per se, but they have a great gimmick, and they know that people love to come see Pyro, and Explosions, and, and Ariel, and instead of putting more value into their songwriting, they put more value into their production. I guess that's why we call it production value. It does have value. You know, and I feel like,
1: I feel like a good sector to look at there is, is like EDM. And not just electronic dance music, but a lot of electronic music, where, in fact, they're creating something that's, that is uh, an environment. Like, you go to EDC or you go to Ultra, the show isn't about those people up there who are, you know so expertly doing the DJ stuff, it's about this environment that's been created around you. I mean, those are shows that are shows about production values, you know, and about an incredible driving, you know, music that you like too, but you are the show in that case. And so now you just want to be surrounded by layers and layers and layers of things that make you feel like you're having a peak experience.
0: And We've come a long way in the EDC world from where it used to be, uh, a hidden warehouse somewhere with uh, a couple uh, techno spots to generate that amount of darkness to these thousand universe rigs with mega tents and uh, in the desert. Here's the whack thing about that. That's, you know, yes to that, but
1: also to that, like when I lived in Vegas back in the early nineties and was involved with some like super early electronic dance music stuff, and e- even if you rewind it back to like when I first got started and I was living in Providence, Rhode Island, I grew up in Rhode Island. I was a house lighting guy at the living room, which is a a, a pit that many bands that have passed through these hallowed halls have also passed through like when i and I was doing EDM stuff back then, and it was like that it was it was off the books, illegal, unauthorized typically you 're squatting in some warehouse you 've dragged together a bunch of production gear. Uh, but even then, those, those things were incredibly immersive experiences, you know, and rather than the immersion being like the acres of LED and the giant magnificent Steven Lieberman, you know, uh, uh, lighting rig that surrounds it, instead the, the, you know, the experience and the, the, the production layer that surrounded it was, we were here illegally. You know, and and look at us, we're all in this building in an unauthorized way. And sometimes we would do crazy things to those buildings, like, you know, painting them with UV paint and, you know, you know, doing all of this kind of like weird installation work to try to create these environments. So I think that that spirit in that level of the business in creating a crazy environment to have a moment in was there from the very beginning.
0: I think if you want to go from the hundred-person level to the fifty-thousand-person level, you gotta you gotta reduce the illegal draw and increase the look how much I paid to be here draw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yet you still have to make it feel like a pirate
1: event. Yeah, you know, like you gotta make it feel like it's on the edge. Like what we could be, what we're doing here could be illegal in some places. You know, it's like well,
0: that's a, that's a tough story to sell, but the people are selling it.
1: And I'm sorry uh, if I've hijacked our, your, your <laughs> podcast and, into studying the human condition. and uh,
0: That is what we're doing. Uh, we, we're we just using our technology to emphasize those, the message. So
1: There's a bunch of famous people walking up.
0: So. Uh, I wanted to talk about how the technology has progressed to a level where you can take some of the things you could only do on land and you're able to take it out to cruise ships now, which have generally usually been limited on power based on uh, logistical restrictions, but now you can take mega rigs out to sea now. Is that something that you're working on? It is something we're working on. And um,
1: the thing is this, I think that the, 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 you know, the the, the capacity to do things out there has increased with the capacity of those venues. I mean, they're building these giant ships now. When I first started working on uh, some cruise ship shows, and it was back like in 2000 I got started doing that, the ships were big, you know, but the theaters in them, where most of the production was restricted to at that time, were like a, a small theater, like a 500, 800 seater maybe, like a small stage house like what you'd see in a casino and you'd think of as like their nightclub kind of thing, right? But now, now you've got these purpose-built experiential entertainment floating extravaganzas that have these massive performance spaces of all kinds, concert spaces, theatrical spaces, experiential spaces, like immersive eating spaces. And you've got the application of every kind of technology. I mean, what you know, Butch and I, Butch Allen, who is my partner at Mode Studios, uh, he and I did a show two years ago that we did for Princess Cruises where we put more technology on that stage and more depth of overlapping effects than either one of us had done in an arena or a stadium up to that point. Uh, And, and, you know, maybe not in terms of sheer numbers, right, but in terms of, like, the breadth of what we were doing, like, you know, creating a giant, incredibly immersive theater, projected map to 270 degrees, layer upon layer upon layer of automated scenery, all of it crusted with pixel mapped you know, embedded LED, you know, all of it uh, choreographed to within an inch of its life with incredible complex automation moves. The aforementioned cloud of drones, um, you know, a whole vast array of light fixtures and a, like an incredible audio system. Like, you know, the literally one of the best sounding places I've ever been was that theater aboard the Majestic Princess for Princess Cruises. And it's like... They are spending real money on production, and they are going after real production values. I mean, if you want to look at some of the, the most out there, on the edge, using all the best gear that you've ever seen anywhere in a venue, it's happening in places like, you know, the cruise lines, because they are in this. You know, if you think about it, you know, those cruise lines, most of the majors, and almost all of them are owned by Carnival. You know, this Carnival is Royal Caribbean, who also owns Celebrity. Uh, you know, and then there's a few others, right? There's Norwegian. Those people are constantly building giant casino hotel entertainment venues that move at all times. You know, so when is the last time that, that uh, the MGM group built another casino? I don't know. I mean, sometime recently maybe, but this year, Carnival, who owns all those other cruise lines, they'll build 15 new mixed-use experiential entertainment venues that can hold 5,000 people at a time and wander to different cities. That's staggering. But it's like the pace of that. So, you know, if you go across the street to Disney, they have this amazing mix of technology where some of it is really old, but it still works, and it's part of an embedded legacy way of doing the show sitting right next to the the most new items you can see on the show floor here or in other places. You know, and it's because that's a, that's like a, a staggeringly big thing to move. The cruise industry, they are constantly building new things with the newest stuff. And so the entertainment there is like, in, in my opinion, that's where like real innovation is happening.
0: Yeah, if you're going to be producing 15 uh, hotels in a year and each one of them has to have the story of we're the first one to do x because that's how the, the cruise ships they get attention for their shows like we're the first ones to have an aerial rig we're the first ones to have indoor pyro we're the first ones to have whatever it is and each one needs to have that story that you have to be constantly be innovating and coming up with new outside the box ideas that must be a dizzying pace for you It is a
1: dizzying pace. But the fortunate thing is, like, what we do on cruise ships feeds what we do in brand activations. And both those things also feed what we do for recording artists. And that feeds what we do in the theater and in opera. And then all of that mixed up ends up, you know, feeding what we do in architecture. You know, the thing is this. If you're into production, you know, it's easy to think about these little boxes. Theater, concert touring, um, you know, big corporate or brand activation stuff. Uh, But the thing is, we're living in an age when the expectations for production values is going to be everywhere at all times, in every retail space, civic space, or shared public space. A craving for production values by uh, a civilization that is surrounded by them at at almost all times now. You know, so this vocation that we're involved with, this... You know, Whether you're a designer or a technician, I'm here to tell you that the potential scope of where you're going to apply your work skills has exploded, but it's like the beginning of the explosion. It's like the Big Bang. It's going to grow to be so huge that it's almost hard to comprehend.
0: That makes me wonder if we're going to be coming full circle any day soon, where we're so bombarded with beams and strobes and blinky things that maybe minimalism will become the new rebel, the new impact. I wonder if we'll ever get to that place where we'll come back to where shadow and form becomes more of an impact than a hundred universes of lighting. And that's all about application, right? Just, you know, I might choose to
1: put a huge PA in a room with the capacity to be incredibly loud and incredibly clear and really get great imaging and focus, I might put up, you know, I heard, you know, last night I was talking to some people about the new BTS show and I heard a crazy number of lights. Like I heard that maybe it was going to have 17,000 fixtures, right? Right. So we certainly, so what I'm trying to get at though is though you might fill a space with technology, it doesn't mean that you have to turn it all on all the time in every moment. I mean, look at how Willie Williams can create an enormous set for you two, a giant technology crusted mega thing in a stadium and yet he will with the most incredible discipline and style turn on one thing at a time all night long, you know, where he never turns it all on. Like, I don't think on 360 he ever turned all of it on at the same time or or in prior tours or in this new Joshua Tree thing. You know, so just because you have mass doesn't mean that you have to bring the full inertia, right? You know, and and that's a, you know, and that's why Willie is a master because he he might have 5,000 fixtures there, but his most powerful moment is when he turns one of them on.
0: And when I went t- and saw Joshua Tree, I think there were four cues for the first four songs, and it was amazing. And then towards the end of the show, the technology was was used to complement the message, and there was some amazing things happening where. The the GoPro in the camera was being broadcast, manipulated, and put up on the I don't know I don't know the number of how big that wall was, but it was the entire arena. And it was it was there was a a very easy transition from one cue per song to some rock and roll to some impressive technology that made sense to me. Uh, some of the other people I talked to, they were completely bored by the first ten songs. And, and I'm not sure why we had such a difference of opinions. I was I was blown away by the restraint and the the, the ability to not have to blind the audience with every with every downbeat. Look, I think that most
1: uh, you have to always remember that everything is not for everyone. Agreed. Right. And Willie was making that show for the people it was for, which are the thoughtful dedicated, considered U2 fans who understand that there's incredible narrative and political implications behind their lyrics and their songwriting, And, and Willie is very carefully articulating that journey visually, never getting in its way, but providing a container for it to happen in that does nothing but amplify it, right? And then there are people who don't know that they're coming for that, but they really, that touches them. Because when you appeal to the multiple senses in that way, in a coherent way, those people are going to come away from that show, maybe having not had that experience before, but now having had it saying, I will never, ever miss another U2 show, because that was a religious experience. (laughs) And then there will be the people that you were near, who were bored by the restraint.
0: And for them, that show is not for them. Yeah you know like hey i just came here to drink beer and listen to the, the the music from my childhood and they they made me think feeling they made me think about things that i hadn't thought about or that i had feelings that i wasn't ready to have and that maybe that was uncomfortable for them
1: uh yeah i think i think it is you know i think it totally was and look i don't know i don't want to harp on it but just cuz you have tons of it you know, these are all tools. You know, all of these things, the new fixtures, the new ability to communicate, augmented reality, you know, virtual reality, all the merged reality tools. I talked about BTS and, you know, maybe they're gonna go out with 17,000 lights, but this last tour they went out with all kinds of merged reality and mixed reality things. You know, but again, these things were in service of the mission behind making music, which was is to tell stories and create emotion and connection between people and they were all used in a calculated narrative way. And I'm telling you, if you choose to be granular in your decisions, if you choose to calculate why you're doing something, and if you play the game that poker players play where you like, and then what happens, and then what happens, and then what happens, if you think about these things as a designer, whether you're a lighting designer, a video designer, a content designer, a recording artist, if you're thinking about these things these ways, you are going to create enormously powerful impressions on people. You are going to you are going to really create ripples in the universe, you know. Or you cannot do that and just hit everything again and again at full power, and you know.
0: Uh, I've reached a point where the technology was too much on uh, a recent tour of mine. And the artist basically became a slave to the technology to the point that she made a declaration that it's my whole rig or nothing. And so we would come to some of the venues where we couldn't hang the video wall or the entire video wall, and we had to like cut a few panels. And if she had found out that we had to slice a few panels off, she would cancel the show. We're like, no, you, we can easily just shift the content up and you'll still get... of your show, and she would, if she knew about it, she would cancel. She's like, no, it's 100% or nothing. Where in her brain, or in her opinion, she thought that if I'm not giving my crowd, my audience, 100% of my show, then I don't want to present it at all. But there's no way the audience wouldn't have known that 99% of the show wasn't 100%. Have you, you come know, you, across anything like that?
1: <laughs> you had a really interesting discussion yesterday about ethics with Aaron and kind of these ethically questionable moments. You know, I'll, I'll share that I've had some clients like yours. And I'm going to choose to applaud the notion of it because maybe it was that she was like, I'm never going to let my audience down. Right. I want them to have the 100 percent version of my show. And if they can't, then I don't want to give them that. I only want to give them that A plus thing. I kind of applaud that, like, I applaud the, 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 the thing that is behind that. But uh, I have had clients like that, you know, and I've had, you know, I've had artists I've worked with, or producers I've worked with, or managers, who also insisted that everything be on, like, in all different kind of ways, you know? And uh, I've, you know, there have been times, like, I've, I've put on a Submaster every light. You know, and I'm sitting front of house with somebody, and we're going through the show, and then they go running down to look back to make sure that the whole front of house truss is on, and I put up the Submaster, you know, to to 20%. So it looks like I've got every light on, right? And now I...
0: Was that ethically questionable? I don't know. What do you think, Chris? If you're making your client happy, it's absolutely ethical. In that regard, you were you were doing what you needed to do, to portray the right feeling. Yes, I
1: would. I wanted, I was trying to protect my client. Right. I knew that what my client. I. I had a pretty good gauge of what my client's audience wanted. And I had had some experimentation that I had done up to that point in having designed things before and seeing what worked for the audience and what didn't. And I knew that having all the lights on
0: all the time didn't work for the audience, you know, much at all. Uh, no, you, you, you know, become numb to it after a while. If, you're, if the lights are in your face the entire time, eventually you're going to be squinting and you're going to be... You're going to become numb to it, you're going to, yeah, I think and, you do you know, that.
1: And that said, I think, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the process of, of integrating an artist into a show, showing them the show for the first time, the impression you create on the artist the first time they walk in the room and they see the rig, right? They see the thing that is going to be the visual instrument for the tour, right? I spend a lot of time thinking about that and trying to manage that. Like I want to know, when is the artist walking in the building immediately? Because I want the artist to walk in the room, and this has, happens throughout rehearsal for me. I'm, I'm, I am a stickler. To I believe that the artist needs to have a certain environment to deliver their best work. I believe that the artists are very complicated and complex creative human beings who need good raw materials to create good moments. And I want to be in service to that. So for instance, if I have a piece of something that we're working on, I might say this is not ready to be shown. And if I hear, okay, artist is in the building, I'm like, we're out of this. Because the first impression of the day can't be something that's broken, unless... The artist has left the building the night before, tasking us with making sure that thing was right. Then maybe the best way they can walk in is to walk in and see us working on the broken thing. But what I'm getting at, that's still a calculation. You know, that impression. That collaborative way of thinking about how I can get the best out of the people I'm working in service of and the people around me.
0: How do you deal with... Artists who think they're generating some sort of emotion and it's clearly not working the way you think the message isn't being relayed the way you think it is do you ever do you ever assert your opinion above theirs? because obviously they don't know what it's like out at front of house for their own
1: show. I have to be really careful answering those because I, I think that the artist, I, look, I think we have to give a lot of respect to why we're here, right? Agreed. You know, and, and it's funny, Butch and I talk about this a lot, because I'll come at something and be like, I'll take what an artist says to us in a conversation, and I'll immediately be saying, how do I 3X that? How do I 10X that? How do I 100X that? And Butch will say, why don't we just do what he asked us to do? <laughs>
0: That's a great Butch answer.
1: It's a great Butch. And you know what? Yeah. He's right. He is right. He is right. He is right almost every time. Now, I, I benefit from having gone through that exposition in my brain of all those what-ifs. Because, at, you know, look, as the thing takes form, what I do now at this stage in my career, I used to be like, no, I'm going to fight for design moments. And I know, I know what the audience wants. I don't know anything, is what I've learned. And I've learned that, that every moment is rich with an opportunity for me to learn something new. The moment I make a decision that something will be better if, or the moment I make a decision that I want to do this, I have closed off every other direction or opportunity I could take. What if instead I could hold myself open to that for the maximum amount of time in the creative process? And the best way for me to do that is to do what the artist has asked me to do. As closely um, executed as I can get it to what they have described. And then what might happen if they then see that and see what I have made and see that it came from them and then they say, either, oh, I know what could make this better, or, "Okay, thank you for doing that. How else could this be better? We have to have humility in our process. You know, We have to keep open all the time our minds to the idea that a better idea could be coming from somewhere outside of our brains. And in my case, in fact, that's almost all the time. So, and it took me a long time to get there. You know, because early in my career, I had a big boy genius thing in my head. And it took me like, decades to get out of the way of that.
0: This is a very interesting rabbit hole we've gone down. I really appreciated that. Uh, to bring this back to what we were talking about, we are progressing to a place where we won't even need to deal with the artist ego per se, because we'll have hologram shows and we'll be able to have where the the technology is the show. Have you been, have you gone down that path yet where you're using holograms and uh, where basically the technology is as the presentation?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, I did my first hologram back in, like, 1989 with a Pepper's Ghost effect on, you know, uh, on a stage in, in, you know, in a little arty music space in Providence, Rhode Island with a big-ass mirror that I hauled in there and, you know, and a bunch of mayhem. Uh, You know, and then we designed Sinatra Live at the London Palladium in 2005, and that was, you know, that was a metric ton of holograms uh, all over the stage, and we've done the hologram gag a whole bunch since last year. We did a, a thing with Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater where we we tried to bring Alvin back and put him back on the stage at the New York City Center. So, you know, and this is like we could, you and I could probably dedicate a whole series of shows to this, right? Should we? Will we? Yes, you know. The okay,
0: then how should we? You know, but uh, uh. Should we be planning now for, later, prese- for later, uh, later videos? Should we be filming Stevie Nicks for the future Stevie Nicks hologram tour?
1: Well, at a functional level, I just talked about Alvin Ailey, a dance company, and you want to talk about a marriage of art and technology. They are now beginning to experiment with an idea of, you know, up to now, if you think about a big dance company or you even think about a big performer like Fred Astaire, you know, or or a musical performer like Madonna or, you know, Paula Abdul or someone like that, their choreography was always imparted via description by a human to whom it had been passed by another human, right? Sometimes through generations. And uh, what an amazing thing that is, right? But But now you have people, you know, you have performers who are doing this. You have movie stars and you have uh, a recording artists who are like recording songs and getting motion captured at the same time and creating this high vit- fidelity archiving. You know, Alvin Ailey, which is, I didn't quite make that point, they're now using motion capture to recreate all the classic Ailey choreography, capture it in data form so that later, a hundred years from now, the legacy of that choreography isn't going to be the telephone game of person to person to person to person to person. It's going to be, no, this was the movement.
0: The exact momentum, the exact stop point of each arm movement will be recorded forever.
1: Right, and it ties into a lot of what's happening around here musically, too. Like, imagine if Mozart had had a giant, you know, DAW-powered... You know, MIDI layered sampling studio, and you could actually have the velocity information for how he played the keys while he was writing and what he wrote. You know, we're going to have all that information now for from all these recording artists, from the brain to the finger to the bits and bytes, right? And we're going to have it in an audio way. We're going to have it in a visual way. You know? We're even going to have it now because of machine learning in certain psychographic ways. Like just in terms of like the, the emotions that they were imparting.
0: So instead of a Prince cover tour we could do a Prince recreation tour where we're actually recording these are the actual recorded button pushes that Prince made and we're just presenting that again, he's just not here. Yeah, and it is still, you know,
1: although it is a playback of a recording, it's a playback of a performative moment in time. So you get to enjoy that moment in time, just not without the human
0: who is initiating it. It's I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think there's a lot of value in that. I'd, I'll be interested to see if there's anything that prevents us, I would imagine there's copyrights and stuff that an IP that prevents us from doing that, but if that information is out there and we can generate emotion and income on that, I feel, I don't know why we shouldn't be
1: doing that. It's going to happen. It is happening. It is a financial calculation. You know, those artists are going to own that body of work past the time of their death. Their estates will own it and will continue to uh, uh, commoditize it and drive revenue with it. There's so many people talking about hologram. It's like another thing this year. Have you noticed? It's like everyone's like we're doing a hologram tour of you know everyone's doing a hologram tour. You I know? would go
0: to a Bob Marley hologram tour tomorrow. I would pay I would pay top dollar for that because I never had a chance to do. I never got to see him, and I would his music means so much to me. I would I would pay to see that even if they just had a photo of him and the music, even if it was with the Wailers, I would pay top dollar, I would take my wife, I would take my kids, and I would still feel like we were seeing something special.
1: I think the key is to continue to add the performative aspect to it. Have a person still operating the lighting. Have a band on stage collaborating with the virtual Bob. Have dancers doing what dancers do it, right? Because otherwise, you're in another form of a wax museum. Yeah. But at the moment you begin to put it back into live performance and people who are collaborating to make a creative moment together, though the baseline of it is this fixed in time holographic recording of another artist, I think it's a totally valid art form, you know? And I and the tools are getting better and better and better to do it. So we're going to see a lot a lot of that happening, especially because it's like you know, I think if you look at a lot of live concert touring, and this might be a little bit of a provocative statement, a lot of it is outside the reach of a lot of people. When you're paying 200, 300, 500, 1,000 bucks a ticket to see some high ticket live bands, you know, there becomes a need in the marketplace to do a more efficient, cost effective form of touring.
0: I'm embarrassed to say how much I recently paid for the upcoming Atlantis Morissette tour. I'm not going to say which
1: is blowing my mind. She's doing better than she's doing. Like I've heard, like I've heard Polestar stuff where she's like doing like million dollar shed dates.
0: She's selling out in
1: seconds. Which is which is amazing and good for her. I'm a huge, huge fan of hers. Like when she first went on the road, I was working in the Verilite shop in Regal Row and like I really, really wanted to get that show. Like I wanted to go out on that tour. Uh, I was a huge fan of hers. And and her Broadway show is also blowing up. You know, so we see that artist's body of work has longevity that can apparently go beyond their own longevity. So
0: I guess it's those ticket prices that allow our technology to keep progressing. It does, and the, 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 the technology is progressing, and I'm here like,
1: just in the, like, I, I want to talk about how the power of that technology, I mentioned that holograms are getting easier to do. They are. We are on the very edge of the Rubicon of augmented reality becoming an everyday thing in every production that we do. And it's not just gonna be in the productions, it's gonna be everywhere we go. The moment augmented reality moves off your phone, and onto glasses. Yesterday I saw a scientific white paper report about contacts that can add an AR layer that doesn't have visual boundaries. It goes to the edges of your, 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 you know, your vision, right? That's going to be a department. It's going to be a visual department. Now, and at the, at the point when every, everywhere we go has production values, Architecture has production values. Retail has production values. And it's this kind of a powerful production value. Look at, you know, I'm not going to drag us into politics, but I think that we could potentially agree that, that the fidelity of information around us has grown so powerful that it is difficult to, per, per, to really perceive what is truth and what is not. And that's because creative tools have been weaponized. Right? So as designers, and as practitioners who work with these tools, it now becomes up to us to make decisions ab- about how responsibly we will use them. Because you could shift the course of a civilization now with
0: commonly available creative tools. That is a, that's a deep rabbit hole. <laughs> most, of the, most of us are using the augmented reality to make bouncing clouds and you're talking about a, a, a far deeper, darker side of what is possible there. And yeah, there's a whole other ethical discussion to be had there. What can, we, what can we do? What can we trick our audience into believing? You know, with, if, I have, if I want to pay for 10 dancers, but through augmented reality, I can pay to have 1,000 dancers on stage, and the audience can't tell the difference, I'm going to pay the 10 dancers down front and then hire an AR guy to do the other 990 dancers. And you've picked only one
1: fork, you know, in that ethical, creative, logistical potential.
0: Yeah. If I want to have Slash and Michael Jackson do another duet and I have a guy who can make that happen, I'm going to... I'm gonna do whatever I can to monetize that, I would imagine. Uh, You are, and I think that, look, there are people in life whose
1: mission and actual gig is to monetize things and is to provide things that they can sell for as much money as they can get for as little money as they can spend, right? And we see this in production already, you know, like, you know, even if we're not talking about AR, I've done tour, concert tours or other shows where we've had on-stage dancers and then I've shot the dancers, and replicated them on screens to make it look like I've got 500 dancers. You know, and that's kind of a manifestation of that, but it's like in any... It, 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 technology doesn't care. It will, and it will tend to make more efficient whatever it comes into contact with. So it's up to us to care. Like, I'll, for, for your audience in particular, let me say this. Right now, the the position of a moving light or a lighting programmer exists because there needs to be an interface between a creative person, a production designer, a production director, a lighting designer, and the head end of all that equipment. Now, I'm not trying to be a doomer gloomer here, but I'm here to say that augmented or artificial intelligence tools and machine learning tools are going to quickly make that interface much more intuitive and approachable. And so what happens to the lighting programmer when the show director can just basically talk to an incredibly talented chat bot uh, and, and say, I want a blue scene here and if you can make it asymmetrical and I really like those big, thick, beamy things and do everything they already do when they're talking to Marshwinsky or Benny or any of the lovely people we know and the machine can do it.
0: Or if a designer can just wave his arms with a a glove, like, I want those lights over here in yellow, no red, and just wave his arms. That is, I foresee that in our... I don't know if that'll be our lifetime, but definitely my kids' lifetime. Uh, I don't think it's a question of our lifetime. It's a question of are we going to see it next year? Oh man! You know, what I mean,
1: like I know you know it's not. And again, I'm <laughs> I. In as much as you're you saying lifetime is probably too wide, me saying next year is too narrow. But like ten years from now, yeah. Like already, I know of designers who have set up like little jury rig gestural systems to control lighting rigs and to do the kind of thing you're talking about, and they're doing it in the service of of sort of of technological art questing, but th- that stuff is going to become a commercially applied layer to control of systems, right? So there's, there's a lot of deep implications to the new levels of technology. When I got into this business there were Lecos, Parcans, and Fresnels, and beam projectors, and that was it. And there had been that for a hundred years, right? And now I literally can't keep up with the number of new lighting fixtures, lighting controllers, media servers, connection, you know, facilitators. It's, it's moving so fast and that it is increasing exponentially. You know, our industry, if it, like creatively, technologically, logistically, is going to be disrupted again and again and again. It, not in our lifetimes, but in this decade. And in the next decade, it will go faster
0: and harder. Buckle up. You can't even come out with the technology and get a return on investment fast enough to implement it nowadays because as soon as you've invented something and put in the R&D and get, the, get it approved, it's already outdated.
1: Totally true. You know, it would be silly for me to, to specify fixtures that I had on a tour I did in 2015 and, but if you'd asked me that in 2005, I would have been like, well, no. I, you know, I, maybe there's a new crop of moving lights that have come out. You know, but otherwise, I'm going to do things the way I've always done them. But now, we're not. You know, we're going to have new fixtures with new capabilities. We're going to have new abilities in every possible way. In rigging, in sound, in lighting, in augmented reality, in video, all of it. And you know, on, on all of it deep, more deeply
0: and more deeply and more deeply interconnected you know you've given us all a lot to think about i uh, i'm going to have to go and reflect and really refresh my programming skills to make sure that i don't become a dinosaur anytime soon this has been a great discussion bob just do what makes you happy absolutely and, and do it again and again thank you so much for this discussion this is chris los and bob boniel speaking live from the show floor at nam I hope that we've uh, given everybody a lot to think about. I'm really thankful for all of your insights and all your creativity, Bob. I hope that I didn't drift around too much. I, we always start with just a, a leaping off point when we start our conversations, for sure. We definitely uh, poked into some, uh, some wounds and some scabs that we need to discover and uh, dig deeper into. I'm super grateful you've had me on. I love the show. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Today's podcast has been brought to you by PLSN projection, lights, and staging news, and timelessjobs.com.